Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Angelo DeCaro, who is the research director for Unifor, about a new report uh, and a strategy just released called Navigating the Road Ahead, Rebuilding Canada's Powerhouse Auto Sector. So welcome to the interview, Angelo. Uh, great to be here. Now, before we get into your report, I want to set a little context here, because I think this is really important. Uh, the Americans, well, President Joe Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act on Tuesday, and it has a lot to do with your strategy. It's good. It's important context. And my take on the IRA is that this is essentially the United States declaring economic war on China. And what I know it's a little dramatic, uh, listeners, I can hear I can I can hear them flinching. Uh, already, but bear with me here as I lay this out. Over the last 10 years, China has essentially uh, uh, strategically built its clean energy manufacturing capacity and all of the supply chains that feed them, including the auto electric vehicle sector. And the I have a chart in front of me that I got from Bloomberg NEF that shows the, the electric vehicle supply chain and China's role in it. And on the mining side, they completely dominate several of the critical minerals. Uh, on, but really importantly, and this doesn't get nearly enough attention, material processing. You have to take the minerals and, and, and refine them and process them into battery metals. And here, China controls almost 80% of that capacity. You want to, you've got lithium in Canada? Well, great. You're going to have to get it refined in China. So that China becomes a, a really important bottleneck cell components, 75 or 80%, battery cells, over 80% China dominates, and they make well over 50% of global electric vehicles. And I think that the Americans uh, finally woke up and said, hello, you know, this is the this is the new industry. This is the fourth industrial revolution. And we're on the outside looking in. We're at best a, a week number two to China. And maybe we're, you know, number three after Europe. And uh, well, that's not good enough. And, you know, President Biden said during the 2020 campaign, he acknowledged China's dominance and said, I pledge to put America number one by 2030. And this is his strategy. And that's really important context for Unifor's auto, uh, Canadian auto manufacturing vision, because it's a response to that. And what role does Canada want to play in this new North American approach to global and you know regional competition around electric vehicles and that's a really important question we haven't answered you've asked many of the your organization has asked many of those questions in your strategy so that's sort of my take on context maybe i'll get you to respond yeah no i i, I don't disagree with the uh the broader context and um and certainly uh you know when it comes to electric vehicle component parts um a growing global sector very lucrative global sector. China 
has uh, has really jumped ahead of the pack, uh, and, and that includes not just auto producing regions like North America and the U.S. specifically, but you know Europe and the European Union are also in the same boat of trying to play catch up and and doubling into this uh, the need to develop a new battery supply chain, and 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 that is very complicated. Uh, th that is sort of a the global kind of you know shell game that's going on here uh, and it's important to keep uh, attention on that but uh, yeah i think for canada you know in in this in this case you know we we start from the point of view like uh, you know we have a a sector that is that is very critical it's a sector that drives tremendous economic activity uh it's a sector that has been falling apart for the past generation since 2000 and a lot of that has to do with uh, changing trade flows including with china and uh watching a sector that used to be a crown jewel in our industrial crown um you know uh fade away uh it's been it's been tough and uh and this opportunity uh that's been presented to us about a restructuring a shift in the midst of some of these global headwinds, political headwinds that are playing out, uh, you know, we quickly find ourselves in Canada surprisingly well positioned to not just rebuild this sector and reap all the economic benefits to it, but really harmonize our strategy about uh, achieving ambitious goals like net zero in 2050. I want to talk about why Canada's auto sector needs to be rebuilt. When I was going through your, your study, I found a, a chart that uh, described the decline in auto sector employment. And I was shocked by how much it had declined. I think it was 170,000 uh, 20 years ago, and now is around 121-ish thousand. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a big decline. And I, it, now, are we looking at jobs displaced by uh, automation? And digital technologies, this is what we're seeing in the oil and gas industry, you know, uh, output continues to grow, but employment continues to drop. Is it that trend? Or really, are we? did we see a, a, a decline, a, a degradation of Canada's auto manufacturing capacity? Well, it, it, it's all of those things, I, I think, uh, you know, starting from uh, the year 2000 was in and around the time that some very important uh, trade rules uh, were were officially dismantled. Uh, the Canada-U.S. Auto Pact was the driving force underpinning a lot of this, you know, integration and mutual growth in the sector. But at the same time, around around then is when China accedes to the WTO. Uh, we've got uh, smaller countries now looking at export-driven development in the auto sector, knowing you know how lucrative the the spillover effects of, of growth in that sector. So import penetration became very high. We saw Mexico's sector develop, becoming kind of a low-cost feature of the North American region. So a lot of work was being you know uh, brought down to Mexico. And all of that playing out as technology technologies advancing. So automation ha definitely had a role to play in higher efficiency. So it's like uh, all of those things in one, uh, resulting in what you rightly point out as as in our report. You know, we saw somewhere in the ballpark of a forty thousand uh, job decline in the sector. But not only that, but capacity. Uh, uh, reductions in parts in assembly. We lost half a dozen uh, assembly plants in that time period, which devastates small communities. Um, uh, and so this has been a real, real challenge for the last uh, number of decades. 
Well, let's talk about some of the recommendations that are in your strategy. And we'll talk with, start with number one, which is establish a comprehensive national automotive industrial strategy and program. And I, I assume that you're talking about the, the Canadian government doing, doing this. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit, please? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, it, you know, th there's been a bit of a laissez-faire approach to how we, um, how we build industries in this country. And I, I think there's, there's an ideological underpinning to it where, you know, we, we want to create conditions where, you know, businesses are, are globally competitive. We want to, we want to tear down regulations. We want to, you know, break apart any, any barriers uh, that, that, that appear to exist and, uh, and just kind of letting, letting businesses duke it out. Um, and, and I suppose that's the approach we've taken since the, the 1980s. Um, we haven't seen much industry growth uh, in, in key sectors, but, but a lots of decline. And so having a, a comprehensive industrial strategy for a sector that is clearly a sector that has the potential to be a winner for Canada uh, and and uh, have a tremendous spillover benefits. It's it's not just about providing investments for you know assembly programs or or making sure that we're we're rapidly accelerating you know mining development to to unlock some of these critical minerals. It's putting all of the pieces in place uh, to make sure that this transition actually benefits Canada. We can maximize the benefit. Everything from you know labor market planning uh, to component part production. There's so many pieces to this that we have to fit together, and that can only be done through one comprehensive strategy. Now, I want to bring in an idea here that um, I think is relevant uh, to Canadian policy versus U.S. policy because I'm reading Mariana uh, Muzicato's uh, "The Entrepreneurial State." And she makes a very interesting observation. She said, the Americans really know how to do industrial development. They've done it really well, at least since the post-World War II era. And she said, but what they say and what they do are two very different things. Because the political narrative around this is, you know, free enterprise, bootstrapping, you know, all, all of that, the, you know, the, the rugged individual. But that's not what they, how they operate. How they operate is the American government gets in and provides huge subsidies, you know, for it doesn't matter whether it's aerospace or it's automotives or whatever it is, whatever industry the, the U.S. decides is strategic to, to the future, it gets in there and it de-risks investment for pri the private sector. And once those investments are de-risked, then, then, then the private companies, the private investors flood, flood it with capital, scale it up. And then they become very, very dominant. She says, but let's not, she says, don't listen to what they say. Listen to what they do. Watch what they do. And I see the, the Inflation Reduction Act as squarely within that, the, the American tradition of, of, uh, of de-risking new technologies and, and, and new industries. Now, in Canada, we don't do that. What we do is we we consult and we bring in these, you know, broad policies and then we sprinkle dollars around, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there. And if we want to de-risk a sector, we sprinkle just enough to make it difficult for the companies without actually, give, you know, giving them the kind of resources they need to grow and, and add workers and so on. And, and I don't think that approach is going to work here. I think yeah. that, and I'll explain a little bit more when we get into the, the next question I have. Uh, why that is, but what's your take? Would you would agree with uh, Mazzucato? I, I do. I, I think it's a really poignant take on on, on the the role that the U.S. plays. I mean, um, 
uh, one of the one of the advantages of the U.S. is the size of its market in so many goods. So Canada, uh, you know, is a bit at, at a disadvantage in terms of our our over reliance uh, from a consumer market, from a sales market, from a supply chain base uh, that uh, sometimes what the U.S. does has a greater effect on anything we can do for ourselves. But but the, the point is well taken. I mean, the way they integrate various uh, areas of policy, whether it's trade policy, whether it's consumer incentive, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, zero emission vehicles, you know, it, it, it's, it's crafted in such a way that it's all kind of feeding into the same stream because they're trying to reach the same objective. And that is clearly not something we do in Canada. There's so many examples of this, uh, you know, one of them being just, you know, government procurement, you figure government is a huge buyer of things. And uh, Canada has willingly and freely signed up to, to trade disciplines under free trade agreements all over the world, that really binds our hands to how we can leverage that purchasing. The US has tactically not done that over over decades, they have not ceded that ground, it gives them lots of opportunities to really get creative with how they integrate these policies. That's just one example of so many, but uh, her point is well taken. Now, uh, the next question I have is around uh, your recommendations to develop uh, and support domestic battery grade material production. And the reason I bring this up is I had an opportunity over the last week or two to interview Kwesi of uh, Amofo, uh, I, I think is how you pronounce his last name. My, my apologies to him if he listens to this and I've got it wrong. Uh, but anyway, he is the head of uh, the, the global head uh, for Bloomberg NEF of uh, uh, metals and mining uh, analysis. And so we were talking about, you know, the development of uh, battery uh, critical minerals and, and battery grade metals. Uh, in Canada, and we we're talking specifically about Alberta. And I asked him how long we had, you know, if the window is of opportunity is open now, how long will it stay open? And I was thinking, you know, you'd probably say a decade, right? Because this doesn't happen overnight. And there's a lot of there's policy work to be done and, and, and the plants to be built and capital to be marshaled. And, you know, this is not a, an overnight, you know, just flip, flip a switch, and suddenly you've got this, this industry, new industry. Right. He said three years. He said, if you haven't, if Canada, if you're not moving in this direction, you haven't, haven't begun in earnest in three years, you're dead in the water. And you're because uh, uh, countries like uh, Vietnam and Korea, and there are all kinds of other players in this who have been doing this, you know, they have years head start on us and, and more aggressive industrial policy, and they really mean business. And, you know, if, if we take our usual laissez-faire kind of, yeah, we'll get around to it after we do some consultations and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll put up some of these passive programs, you know, to, to lure investors in, you know, like tax cuts and, and all, you know, regulatory concessions and all of that, that sort of thing. It, it's not going to fly. This, the world of clean energy technologies and industries moves at light speed. And I don't think Canadians understand the extent to which the global economy is being disrupted and restructured around clean energy and clean energy industries and so on. And we have to get off, get on our horse and get moving. And that's, and so with that, in that context, what, tell me about the Uniforce take on the Canadian uh, um, critical minerals and battery metals industry that you'd like to see developed yeah no i uh 
Well, I'll, I'll say that there's uh, certainly a recognition on our part about the, the urgency. Uh, there, there is a danger that, um, you know, supply chains will form, they, they will kind of, uh, you know, solidify, and uh, we would have missed the opportunity to really harness the, this, uh, this potential. Uh, you know, I, I think folks, there, there's a bit of a narrative, uh, a dissonance in the narrative, uh, where people have been really harping on the idea that Canada well-positioned, sitting on a storehouse of critical minerals needed for uh, lithium-ion battery production, new, new uh, EV production. Th there isn't a single mineral right now that is mined in Canada that is going into an EV. Uh, and so that, that's just something we have to like kind of recognize. Uh, uh, we do know that there, there is uh, quite a time lag for getting new mines uh, up and running, uh, permitted, and all, all the necessary processes to do that. Um, uh, what the 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 impetus of our recommendation was, uh, you know, not only to to acknowledge the the need for speed here and the need to get into this game, but one thing we do not want to see, and uh, and I think a lot of the government officials we've talked to, at least from what they say to us, they agree, is that you know we're not going to go down the path where we're going to start digging up minerals from the ground and uh, and then relying on on export markets to, to process and, and add value to those to those minerals only to ship them back to put into batteries uh, that are that are assembled here uh, in Canada so um, this was us uh, trying to uh, recognize the importance of capturing that value in a new supply chain we've seen examples of this in other uh, energy sectors and and we don't want to go down that path again I had a source that I interviewed here. They're very dependable, and, and they asked me to say it in confidence. So I'm not going to share this the document, nor am I going to share the who gave it to me. But yeah. they gave me a spreadsheet with all of the critical mineral projects in Canada that are either underway or are being discussed uh, in a in a serious way. It was like over 400 of them. Yeah. Uh, but if you look through them, they were almost all like 98 or 99 percent. They were nickel. There was no lithium, there was very little lithium. There was manganese, cobalt, all of these other, you know, I, I look at Alberta. Alberta assembled a list of all the critical minerals that it has that could go into batteries. And, and there were, I think there were like 30. And, and none, of, none of them are on, are on that list of projects that are being actively researched and, and pursued. So I don't think Canadians understand how far behind the eight ball here we, we really are. We assume that, it, that, that government is, is moving quickly. We assume that, that industry is readying itself and, and getting in, you know, get, preparing to expand this industry because there's a lot of talk about it. We assume that the capital is being marshaled to, to invest in here. I don't think that's true. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we th there have been some, I guess, you know, green shoots, I, I, I suppose, is the way to put it of, uh, you know, positive developments in the last budget, uh, the federal government introduced their critical mineral strategy and put some dollar figures to it. Uh, th there's certainly a sense that pieces are put being put into play to, uh, to try and develop this segment of of the upstream uh, of the industry. And, and I will say too, I mean, you know, as much as we are readying ourselves for what is potentially going to be mass market adoption of electric vehicles. I mean, again, the, the market is still very, very small. Um, uh, we are seeing what I, I'm considering kind of a first wave of mass production vehicles that will really start hitting showrooms in the next four years, five years or so. Uh, this will increase over the coming decade or two. 
and uh, and we anticipate there'll be opportunities to to take advantage of, of future waves of of new investments here. So all all is not lost. But the point that you're making, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, where we are today, there is a bit of a of a, a, a mistaken view of where we sit. We we are at a position now where we've got the potential, and as we say in our uh, our policy paper, the potential to be a powerhouse if we do all these things right. But we're not there yet. And this is what we need to do, start developing that, that potential a little bit better. Let me give you a, an example of how Canada is fumbling around in this. We talk a lot about uh, end-of-life vehicle, uh, uh, electric vehicle battery recycling. Now, there is a company called Lycycle out of Ontario that's got very innovative technology. They can, they can uh, recycle 95% of any lithium-ion battery. And they're based in Mississauga. They set up their first plant there. They raised $615 million US in their first big uh, uh, capital raise, equity raise. And, and where are they expanding? In, the, in New York, in, in other places in the US. And you know, I, once again, Canada comes up with unique te technology, and we're leading in some, you know, uh, new emerging uh, uh, industry. And you know, our the entrepreneurs, the company, the jobs go south of the border instead of being, uh, you know, north of the border. And so, anyway, just one example. And I bet you know, uh, yeah. you know the the the, the supply chain uh, better than I do. The automotive supply chain. I'll bet you there are other examples. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, there's a couple of things that you've raised there that I think, you know, are worth unpacking. And that's recognizing that uh, supply chain doesn't necessarily start from the, the mineral that you mine uh, to, to the final production of a car that rolls off an assembly line. Uh, there's a whole growing segment of this market, just given the, the finite nature of the critical minerals that we're working with, that recycling is going to be a, a huge aspect of this and, and a growth area and uh, something that, again, our, our, our policy paper contemplates uh, and, and, uh, and also connecting that to uh, uh, possibly uh, providing a, a repurpose to some of our uh, auto sector distribution centers with, with new recycled parts that could be working through them, creating jobs uh, uh, for our members. So uh, absolutely. And, and, and you're right. Uh, part of what we are trying to do, you know, recognizing that realistically, what we, what we, likely won't do is create a entirely self-sufficient closed loop supply chain just for Canadian uh, made vehicles. It's unlikely just given so many other other factors. But but what we have to do is start really focusing on maximizing that value added. And so anytime we're developing technology, we're, we're funding research and development, and what that's doing is now spurring economic development in other countries because they're commercializing it. They're the ones putting it into practice. You know, government policymakers have to, have to recognize that for what it is. It's a failure. It's a failure of our own policy approach and, uh, and, and stuff that we have to rectify if we want to maximize this benefit. Now, I want to talk about the recommendations in your strategy that deal with uh, the role of unions. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you're, you're uh, Canada's largest union uh, organization. And it seems uh, it didn't come as a surprise to me that you would want to protect and grow union jobs and, and have those kind of protections in there. So uh, can you make the argument for why this should be uh, the union should be intimately involved in this process and membership in auto sector unions should be encouraged by the federal government? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, for, for, for one thing, um, you know, we, we've got 
we've got an auto sector that, again, as I said, has played such a critical role in uh, the economic development of, of Canada and, and, and notably central Canada. Uh, but we know that the EV supply chain now is, is likely going to extend much, much further. But Part of the value of that has been the fact that this sector has attracted some of the best talent, uh, some of the highest skilled workers, because it's paid the best wages and it's delivered the best benefits. And that's not happened because there's something magical about the auto sector. It's because it, it's been the platform for workers organizing through unions uh, since the 1930s. And, uh, and so Canadians and, and auto workers and, and workers that are connected to the auto supply chain, they benefit from all of that. And that's why unions have, have not only taken root in those sectors, but have sustained in those sectors over time. Uh, anytime there's a massive industrial restructuring, whether it's at a workplace level or a total sectoral level, what we know based on experience, and it's the, the same everywhere, is that employers will tend to use these opportunities to try and restructure uh, uh, working conditions, try to uh, create new cost-saving measures, and, uh, and workers are left vulnerable if they don't have a collective agreement. So we expect, as the union for auto workers in this country, with, uh, with representation at, uh, at virtually all of the major uh, uh, Detroit Three Assembly plants, that it's just logical that as this uh, supply chain grows, there'll be a need for good jobs and uh, good jobs really that only unions can deliver. That's why we're trying to attach ourselves to this growth. We're already seeing fights that are taking place around the world in places like the US and Germany, where new uh, facilities, new employers that are coming online are actually fighting off uh, uh, organizing attempts. They're trying to define what they're doing as different than what currently exists, trying to defend the fact that they'll pay workers less wages in a battery plant. Uh, and, uh, and so we expect the same in Canada. It will be a fight, but, uh, but this is what workers have done for generations, um, and uh, we'll, we'll fight for those rights. There are a number of specific recommendations about what you'd like to see, like establishing card-based union certification in all jurisdictions. Can you give us a brief overview of what of those recommendations, please? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, card-based certification is a, a long-standing uh, demand uh, from the, the the labor movement, and I, I, you know, the best way to explain it is that currently in most jurisdictions, when when workers want to exercise their right to form a union and collectively bargain, uh, uh, the the labor laws that exist uh, require them to essentially vote twice uh, for a union. One, they vote by signing a union card. Then what they have to do is wait a few days, and then they have to actually have another vote. Uh, and oftentimes that is mired in employer uh, uh, intimidation. There are campaigns to try and thwart union organizing. And so uh, we find that workers have less resistance to joining a union when they only have to do this once. And this facilitates better union organizing. And, and we think that that's just good practice. It'll certainly help uh, grow unionization in the auto sector. We, we make other proposals as well. And one other innovative one is looking at different ways of collective bargaining. So one thing in the auto assembly sector, where there's so few relative uh, auto assembly plants, you know, that we, we bargain with most of them. And then the ones that we don't bargain for, the Toyotas and the Hondas, they usually just fall in line with our negotiated wages anyways, because we kind of set the market rate. That's not the same in the uh, parts industry, where there's a lot of non-union parts facilities. And what we're proposing is uh, a more sectoral approach to collective bargaining in the parts sector to actually harmonize wages, to take wages out of competition, and actually give parts suppliers more certainty about the work standards that they have. 
We think doing that would not only empower workers, it would actually yield greater benefits and attract better skilled workers into the field. And uh, right now, we hear it from all quarters, employers are having a very difficult time attracting those kind of workers. So ratcheting up those work standards that we think will go a long way. Well, speaking of that, um, one of your recommendations is develop a comprehensive national skills assessment and inventory. And then there are some other recommendations about how the different aspects of that. Um, how important is that? It just, it boggles the mind that this is such a major sector in the Canadian economy. And we don't have a national skills assessment and inventory for it? Yeah, no, that, that's correct. Um, there's, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of attention right now being put to the skills needed in future uh, to, to make sure that we've got, we've got the bodies who are able to, to do the work uh, that's going to be needed in this new supply chain. Uh, one of the things that we recognize is that, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, tra transitioning to assembling an EV uh, isn't much different than assembling an ICE vehicle. You know, uh, you, you still have workers on an assembly line, they're still doing their jobs. Um, the real challenge that we see is going to come in the supplier uh, parts. And that's because you don't need internal combustion engines, you don't need transmissions, you don't need fuel systems, exhaust systems. There's a lot of jobs, a lot of parts that go into those components. And, uh, and, and we're already seeing early stages of, of layoffs happening, plant closures happening. We have a transition that's happening right now as we speak at the GM plant in Ingersoll. Uh, just based on our count in Unifor, we have 750 members that will see job loss as a result of that transition. So the question is, how do we retain some of these essential skills? How do we move those workers into new jobs that will form? Uh, and, and we think the, the starting point of that is understanding the, the skills that we have and then forecasting the skills that we need. And again, through an industrial strategy, this is not just looking at one specific workplace or one specific employer. Uh, this is looking at, at, the, at the sector writ large and, uh, and finding ways to, to bring in uh, skilled bodies so that we don't have problems of spending years upskilling and upgrading skills for workers. We want to make this transition seamless. We want to retain jobs and, uh, and, and make this work for everyone. Now, does the Canadian government get this? And I ask this question because, uh, you know, over, ever since the, the Liberals were elected in 2015, I've watched how they've developed climate policy and energy policy. And they've done a lot of consultation and they've done, which is good. I mean, they got brought a lot of stakeholders to the table. And, you know, eventually it led to, a, you know, various acts like C69 or whatever it might be that were a big improvement over what what was there previously when it was needed. But by the same token, uh, there's also this, you know, it takes a long time. It's very cumbersome. Uh, things don't get uh, done uh, in a timely fashion. And then very often the, 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 the government will then, uh, in the face of pressure from, you know, whether it's oil and gas companies or what other, you know, the, the other employers in the, in the field, but, you know, they'll, they'll pressure the, the government, the government will back off and it'll delay things or it'll do another round. Anyway, my, my point here is we already agreed that time is of the essence. We don't have the time to muck about with this. We need to get on with it. We need we need strong policy and, and interventionist kind of strategies to get us where we need. Does the does the government get it? And is there do you think the the leadership there to get Canada where it needs to go in this area? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I 
it, we've had we've had numerous conversations with uh, with federal and provincial officials. Uh, uh, Unifor, you know, sits on various uh, industry bodies and are in close dialogue with a lot of the industry associations as well. So uh, I think we're we're pretty well plugged in. And, and I'll say, you know, ev- everyone wants things to work faster than they are, but I, I, I don't know that there's any really deep-seated criticism of, of uh, uh, that, that there's not a recognition about what needs to happen. So, so that is encouraging. Um, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll say, and you'll see it in our recommendations, is we, we actually suggest that, you know, the government may consider a standalone ministry or agency that actually oversees this uh, this tremendous work that has to happen uh, to build this industrial strategy. And I think, you know, I, I always step back and think to myself, all of this kind of good news, the fact that we're unlocking these, these investments, um, they're coming in fast and furious into Canada, the fact that there is a recognition of all the, the work that still has to happen, is this a product of some unique synergy that's taking place between the federal government, the Quebec government, the Ontario government, because everyone seems to be working in lockstep. The, the, the challenge I think that we, we face here is that as political headwinds shift, priorities may shift. And then we're going to have a disconnection between the work of provincial and federal governments. That I worry about. Because again, just as we're saying, that there is a need for speed. There's a need to stay harmonized and, and understand the ultimate goal. But um, right now, we're relying on a lot of goodwill and, uh, and, and fortuitous shared politics uh, that can very quickly change and really up upend uh the, the 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 progress we're making and uh and i think we have to find ways to lock that in so we're depoliticizing that while also making sure we're moving forward forward quickly now uh, i want to wrap this conversation up with some discussions of uh provinces that are kind of outside the traditional region where the in- industry operates right and you meant you mentioned ontario and quebec so ontario is of course the the epicenter of the auto sector on uh, Quebec is growing and likely to grow quickly more. It's got, you know, Lion Electric on, on the commercial truck and bus side. It's it, battery plants because of, of, of its ac- access to minerals and abundant clean electricity at a low cost, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But there are two other provinces that have targeted the electric vehicle supply chain and that's British Columbia and Alberta. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious uh, what your take is on potential for those provinces to play in the battery supply chain, in the automotive, you know, the the assembly and manufacturing supply chain. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, 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 I absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I recognize too that you know places like uh, British Columbia, they're they're home to you know some of the the new age. Uh, uh, top line uh, component part makers in like hydrogen, uh, uh, you know, cells and, and companies like Ballard Systems, and uh, th- these are not small operations, and and uh, and they're housed right there. I've also been tracking um, many of the new investments. Of course, you know, some of the multi-billion-dollar investments are being cited in Ontario. Uh, you know, as you say, it's kind of like an epicenter, but there's also been some notable investments uh, along the battery supply chain uh, in in southern Alberta. Uh, uh, and so we we recognize that they're on the map on this uh, between the mining 
potential, even between the, the labor force potential and, and possible transference of skills of workers in either of those provinces to kind of uh, move their way into this new uh, EV supply chain is also very real. And uh, there's some work being done on, on analyzing that. So um, one of the uh, reasons why we're not saying in our paper that this is going to be an Ontario strategy or a Quebec strategy, that it's actually a national strategy because there's potential all across the country, uh, all the way to the East Coast uh, to do this work. And uh, I think an effective strategy will, will recognize all those potentials and, uh, and, and execute them well. Well, Angelo, thank you very much for this. It's been fascinating. And, uh, and I think this is, uh, uh, I, it's, we, we did about uh, thir- just over 30 minutes. And I think it's the, we covered a lot of ground and there's lots of really important insights into the, cha- the opportunities and the challenges that Canada is going to face in terms of uh, taking advantage of the growth in this industry. And I'm going to uh, close by saying that uh, if there are any Canadian cabinet ministers or provincial cabinet ministers who are who are listening to this, is that it is we need we need uh, action sooner rather than later, folks. Angelo, thank you very much for this. Thank you so much. This has been great. Mm-hmm.